1968 was the last class to get four full years of the long-established Jesuit Razzi Studiorum. We had uh, Latin nine times a week freshman year. So there was a very, very strict regimen of study that had been in effect at Jesuit secondary schools for some hundreds of years that began to undergo an increasingly speedy change so that my younger brothers, for example, Paul's sons, my son, experienced a very different Gonzaga than we did. Welcome to episode 19 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. That's Michael Dolan from the class of 68, who along with his classmate, Paul Warren, put together the 2005 book, Echo Ever Proudly, Gonzaga in the Press, 1821 to 1899. There are guests this week as we focus on the move to 19I Street that took place in 1871. As Dolan notes, right after he and Paul graduated, the Jesuits and Gonzaga began to adjust as America went through a massive cultural shift in the turmoil and upheaval of 1968. Gonzaga's proximity to the 68 riots and the aftermath for the largely poor neighborhood around the school would present Gonzaga its own challenges a few years later. But as the saying goes, history may not repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. And you may hear in our visit today how a century earlier, trying new things to adjust to meet the needs of the students of the day and to attract new students is a theme as old as Gonzaga. So Michael, let's wind the clock back. Before the decision to move the school from F Street to I Street, the Jesuits had built the St. Aloysius Church in 1859. Give everyone sort of a thumbnail sketch of how much different the neighborhood was pre-Civil War. The new parish of St. Aloysius uh, was from 5th Street Northwest to the Anacostia River. It was a gigantic expanse, and it's referred to in uh, some of the documents from the school history as wilderness. North Capitol Street wasn't even paved until 1859. There's a poster uh, at a neighborhood museum in Brookland. North Capitol Street, now with concrete. There was not much housing in what became to be known as Swamp Poodle, nor was there a big Catholic population. It was just undeveloped. The city still was within its historic boundaries of Florida Avenue, just a few blocks north of Gonzaga. It was sort of the edge of town. So, Paul, by the time we get to 1871, the church has been there for 12 years, but the school is thriving downtown on F Street. What prompted the move? The main reason Gonzaga moved the Jesuits had built this very substantial church. The decision to build this church would have come from Rome. This new country is a substantial country. Let us put our claim, spiritual and uh, land-wise, in the nation's capital. Let us build a magnificent church and establish ourselves here. They did that, but the land that was available was very far away. The Jesuits decided, well, we have this school not too far. Let's move it over there too. They decided, let's put everything in one place. The pastor of uh, St. Aloysius was Father Wicket, W-I-G-E-T. He was also the president of Gonzaga College, but it was more to concentrate their powers. They did it. They moved. Gonzaga was very successful where it was. It thrived, and the move was a complete disaster. Now, it's hard for us today with cars, of course, and the subway to imagine the distance from 917 F Street to 19 I Street being a long ways, but it truly was. The kids did not follow. The streets were unpaved. A rainstorm, a snowstorm, any such issue would make it impossible to travel. So they did not. They just stopped. 
They went to other places. Gonzaga, which, by the way, had moved everything into what is now Coleman Hall. That is, it was the Jesuit residence. It was the school. It was maintenance. It was everything. It was absolutely packed, and it was a mistake. Michael, with all the work you guys did putting that book together, looking at the news clippings, how long do you think it took from the mistake of 1871 for things to really turn the corner? Because there was a pretty good 75th Jubilee celebration going on by 1896. I think it was a matter of hanging on by their fingernails through the 70s and 80s. The neighborhood did begin to fill out a little bit, began to get uh, some housing being built. The houses that were along I Street when we started at Gonzaga, had been built in that era. The city underwent tremendous growth. I mean, Washington, D.C., at the beginning of the 19th century, in the early years of the 19th century, had 3,000 residents. By the 1850s, it had 50,000 residents. The Civil War brought another huge amount of growth, as did the increasing presence of the federal government brought more workers and more uh, enterprise to the city. Now, Paul, while the school has been trying to recover over the next 15 to 20 years since the move, in 1890, a new president gets sent to Gonzaga who makes a big difference. Uh, Father Gillespie, who was president in the 1890s. What challenges did he face? There were these issues financially. There was a depression. That was the panic of 93, which was the worst depression in the history of the country. Well, there was also one in 87. They struggled with them. But Father Gillespie came in and sort of took control, and he did a number of things. First of all, you should know Gonzaga did many, many things trying to solve their problem. They abandoned their college preparatory program and went to full commercial, that is accounting, these kinds of courses. That didn't solve their problem. They became a military school, which they were into the teens, which was very, there were many, many of them in those days. And we were fully military. The boys enjoyed the marching and this sort of thing. And thus the connection to John Philip Sousa with the school's band. This was entirely to entice kids to come. They started sports teams. But anyway, Father Gillespie, when he came in the 90s, increased participation in sports, changed the curriculum to some extent. He increased a little bit some of their college-oriented things. But Father Gillespie also was a very good fundraiser. He raised money for the Gonzaga Hall sufficient to build it. Now, Michael, in the Echo Ever Proudly book, the press clippings around the opening of the Gonzaga Hall, as they called it, we would know it as the Sheehy Theater today. There's a special ceremony where Cardinal Satoli presides. This feels as much to me like a statement to the community as putting the Carmody Center in in the 1970s. Oh, I think it was definitely a statement of community purpose and community uh, engaging the institution with the community because there weren't that many stages around Washington. One of the reasons we have so many clips in Echo Ever Proudly is that so many so many activities, not necessarily Gonzaga related, took place at the theater. I think that the, uh, the hall functioned not only as an advertisement for the school, but as a revenue source for the school because uh, whether it was someone presenting a lecture in the Chautauqua sense, or someone putting on a theatrical presentation could rent the hall. The resulting revenues would flow to the school. The Hibernians, the Irish, were one of the first groups to use it, and they put 1,500 people in that hall right after it opened for a meeting. Well, if you don't think this promotes the interest in kids going to that school, all of these things were formulated by Father Gillespie to promote interest in the school for the community, and it was successful. 
Meanwhile, the Irish were building, were tradesmen, working, building up the buildings in the Washington area and the federal buildings. Gillespie was promoting it, and the sports football was started in 1889, and it was growing during the Gillespie years. Baseball, which had started in 1872, continued to grow. There was bowling, other things. Gillespie was the right man at the right time to get Gonzaga through those depression-type years and to capitalize on the growth, particularly among the Irish in Swamp Poodle. But there were also German and a few cases Italian kids who came to Gonzaga in that period. Gillespie also was sort of a prototype of the uh, modern school administrator who is a tub thumper and a cheerleader and a fundraiser. He was the whole package. I don't think that the uh, creation of the, the theater was in any way originating only with the school in mind. It, it had the community in mind as well. Now, some of you may know this story, but many of you probably don't. When they were putting the theater in in 1896, Father Gillespie bought into a plan to put something underneath the theater. It was a gymnasium, but it was designed for parallel bars and for gymnastics. Oriented toward medicine balls and uh, uh, those pins that they threw around. Yes. And, and uh, it was not it was not push ups and sit ups and jumping jacks activities like being on the on the horse, the uh, gymnastic horse and swinging your arms around. So that might explain why the old gym that was under the theater was never really designed for basketball. Though basketball was, I believe, starting up, we did not have a team until I think 1912. It was not done with the idea of having basketball. As anyone, as both Mike and I observed, when we played basketball down there, we didn't have a gym because out of bounds was, of course, a wall. And this more than one misstep led to someone being unconscious on the floor. After the initial move in 1871, Gonzaga struggled. But by the turn of the century, that address turned out to be the right place at the right time. I think there was a significant momentum. Basically, the population was continuing to grow. People's income was increasing. You know, the government hiring was a very powerful incentive for people to come to to Washington. My own grandmother came to Washington early part of World War I simply for the job as a typist. She came from Wisconsin. She had a sixth grade education, but she learned how to type. And she made, you know, she made a very substantial middle class living eventually working for the government up through into the uh, uh, 60s. This was government floated all boats. So Gonzaga was continuing to grow. And it's the athletics. And if you if you look at the uh, coverage, athletics became more and more important. Professional athletics was not as big a deal, except for baseball in those days. Sports teams of the high schools, particularly Gonzaga against St. John's, was as important a game even in the teens as as anything. It was like Friday Night Lights, except in uh, Washington, D.C. With all the research that you've done, if you were to look back over the 200-year history of Gonzaga, would you rank Father Cornelius Gillespie as one of the top five presidents of Gonzaga? Oh, absolutely. Yes. No question. No, I concur. But Father Wicket, during the Civil War, saved St. Aloysius. As the Civil War started, the Union took over St. Aloysius and was going to convert it to a hospital. Wicket got his parishioners in the course of two weeks 
to build a brand new hospital a couple blocks away. Not only saving it that way, but the, the symbolism of rallying Catholicism and the community to do something they thought was important set a tone. And right after the war, too, he was kind of a spiritual leader of the church in Swamp Poodle and St. Al's and Gonzaga. The other thing is that the middle of the 19th century saw know-nothingism and anti-Catholicism become very, very strong in the United States. There was in the Jesuits' approach to Catholicism a willingness to stand up for and negotiate and navigate through that time, not necessarily truckling, uh, but not also not necessarily coming to, to blows. But for example, the construction of the hospital was an example of the Catholic community and their Protestant neighbors getting together to save, uh, preserve a an institution, St. Aloysius, that meant something to them, independent of its association with the school. A lot of this is important to, for us to think about when we think about what is the spirit of Gonzaga, why are we all so enthralled with it year after year? Mike and I graduated over 50 years ago. Why did we get together on these books? What is the spirit of Gonzaga? And this is the kind of thing that created that spirit down there. And it's still there. Do you guys ever consider how different Gonzaga would feel as a high school if it had just stayed on F Street? I think if Gonzaga had not moved, it would not have had the elbow room to become the institution that it is now. The downtown area where Father Matthews established a school in its original form very quickly became very congested. And even in the uh, mid-19th century, was a very, very busy downtown. It's possible that the school could have had continued growth and expansion, but it just wouldn't have had legroom to expand and grow and put down roots. Had they stayed downtown, they would have been much more part of the establishment. By moving away, when we talk about Gonzaga's spirit, it put a chip on Gonzaga's shoulder. We were out of the mainstream. It's sort of like you know, the Jesuits referred to as the Pope's Marines, which is a little, little extreme. But Gonzaga has always had a chip on its shoulder from its Swamp Poodle days. And I have a feeling that if it stayed downtown, it would have been just another good school, but not with the spirit or not the extent of the spirit that it has now. So now the history major in me is curious this whole project of putting the book together in 2005 with newspaper clippings from 1821 to 1899 with some other great stories and memories in there from distinguished alumni. This all started because of a new offering by the Washington Post. They had gone public with their putting all their back issues up. And as is my want, I started to search it and I searched on Gonzaga and I was very pleasantly surprised how many stories there were. So how far down the path of doing this work do you get before you rope in your classmate Michael Dolan? You should know this about Michael. He's the most industrious, enthusiastic guy. If you come up with any idea, he's going to encourage you to do it, and he's going to have recommendations on how to accomplish it. The and then first... sneak in and take it over. <laughs> yes. So that's one of the first things I did is I called Mike, and I said, you won't believe what I found. Now, it sounds ridiculous to, at this time, but this was the post had just put that online, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, all the history of Gonzaga is now available. I approached Michael, and then, and then we just... We just had the best time you can ever <laughs> imagine. 
what is funny about this is it was made possible by the most modern technology of the day, but we still wound up with scissors and razor blades cutting up these uh, pieces of paper that had been printed out and fashioning the pages as if we were paste up artists in 1950. You do your research and you write your story. And then like you were wrapping a brick in a precious vellum manuscript, you drop it off a pier into the water. And by the way, if you look in that book, the early days, it isn't just from the newspapers. I found everything independent author, a woman who was a traveler who wrote about Gonzaga, compared it to Yale, which I thought was fascinating. I doubt when you were working on this, you knew the impact it would have on others because I've been totally moved by it. This is from page 356. It says, Gonzaga alumni organized large membership on the rolls and 2,500 more to join. Although the college is 75 years old, this is its first association of the kind. Officers elected, committees appointed. When you read those words and you see some of the last names they mention, it just gives me a sense of the timelessness of the fraternity fraternity that really is Gonzaga. Did you guys get that feeling as well? I remember when Paul recruited me for this, I was then freelancing as a writer and I was enduring a period of uh, forced leisure, as it were. And so I was able to throw myself into this project on a daily basis for several hours at a time. And we would get together at Gonzaga. I would ride my bicycle across town from Palisades. Paul and I would meet in the library. We would just sit there mesmerized and mesmerizing one another with, let me read this to you. This is amazing. It was with a sense of delight and curiosity that just kept pulling us farther and farther along. Not only did we discover Gonzaga's past in the newspapers, we discovered Gonzaga's past in the dirt. I love this story. Paul, explain the history of the Spirit Stone. When we were working on this book, I became very curious about the area that Gonzaga was originally, and I went down there and I looked at it and I saw that they were excavating the area that Gonzaga was originally. The entire corner was being excavated for a building. The timing was exquisite. I called Mike immediately. We basically got our shovels. We got permission to go down there on a sat. I think we had when they weren't working on a Saturday and Sunday, and we just went looking for the foundation of the original Gonzaga. We found dishes, pieces, all manner of things. And we found pieces that, that the city archaeologists confirmed were of that era. Remember and how frustrated we were? We couldn't find anything that appeared to be a foundation right. from an old right. building. The people who were excavating for the construction had the blueprints of the area uh, so that they wouldn't dig into something they shouldn't. We met with the structural engineer. We told him what we're looking for, and we looked, and he showed us 917 F Street, and he says, why don't you go look in here? So Mike and I went, and we knocked on the door of Central Liquor Central Liquors. Appropriately. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We went in, and we talked to the uh, owner, and we said, we'd like to go to your basement. We sweet-talked him into letting us go down. We looked, Mike and I looked at each other in shock, and it was very clear here was a foundation from 1817, 18, 1819 of the original Gonzaga. We were, it was like a discovery. It's hard to express how excited we were. Several of the stones that were part of that foundation had fallen out and were just sitting there. And I said, do you mind if we take these? And he said, no, no problem. They're not holding it up. So we took them. We had the idea, let's 
make something special from this. Then they also were doing construction at Gonzaga. They were tearing down the old fire escape. Ah, yes, from the quad where we used to have the pep rallies. (laughs) Yep, there it is. So we got parts of that. I went to a a friend of mine who was a iron guy, whose cousin, in fact, he had gone to St. John's, Joe Cristaldi. He helped put this thing together and created this thing. And we dubbed it the Spirit Stone because it's the very basis of the original Gonzaga. And we dedicated it there. It was a wondrous, wonderful (laughs) spiritual experience for me. Yeah. No, I felt the same way. Michael, you've spent most of your career as a historian. Has there ever been any work that you've done that kind of overlapped with the work you did researching Gonzaga? The personal sense of connection in doing historical research I've had never had an experience quite like it. Right now, I happen to be working on a presentation I'm going to be giving in, in the neighborhood, uh, the neighborhood center, in a few months on the history of the water plant in Washington. And uh, I just came across a book that I used 20 years ago in researching an article I wrote for the Washington City paper about the water plant. It mentions that uh, General Montgomery Meigs, who built the uh, the water plant and also built the Capitol Dome and built uh, the post office building uh, down on Pennsylvania Avenue was the guy who hired Constantino Brumidi to uh, do frescoes and paintings inside St. Al's. He allowed Brumidi to do this work on the side for eight or ten dollars a day as a per diem while he was painting the Capitol. So there's a sense of, of the school being intertwined with the history of the country. Without a doubt, that is one of the big takeaways if you pick up a copy of Echo Ever Proudly, Gonzaga in the Press, 1821 to 1899. Paul Warren and Michael Dolan from the class of 68. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the work you put in nearly two decades ago, creating this incredible historic resource for anyone who's curious about the history of Gonzaga. You're welcome. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed it and thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Whether it was tinkering with the curriculum in the 1880s and 1890s to attract more students or making a pivot in the fall of 1968, the Jesuits have always been keeping their eye on where things are going. Looking ahead to next week in episode 20 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast, our visit with Gabe Smith from the class of 1954, the first African-American to graduate from Gonzaga. As the 1940s came to a close, Gabe Smith was an altar boy in a parish in Southern Maryland for a priest named Father Horace McKenna. Everyone remembers what Father McKenna was doing on I Street in the 1970s and his work with the homeless. But more than 25 years before he was recognized as Washingtonian of the Year, Father Horace McKenna was making a very positive impression on Gabe Smith of the class of 54. He looked at people as children of God and not any white, black, red, or green. As children of God, everybody deserved respect. At the time, being a youngster, I said, wow, you know. I wonder if he learned this in Jesuit school or something. It's a lot of inspiration coming your way next week with Gabe Smith. As always, love getting feedback. Podcast at Gonzaga.org. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you can write a review like DC Johnny did in the last week, that always helps. We appreciate it. And be sure to follow, subscribe, and share the Echo Ever Proudly podcast with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time, ad maorium dei gloriam and hail Gonzaga. Oh.